I printed in the bulletin just a little bit uh, ahead of our text here this morning, which begins in verse 11. I'm just going to read from uh, the beginning of verse 1, and you can pick it up if you're following along in your bulletin, or you can uh, read along. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they uh, might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let me pray. O Lord, as we consider the ramifications of your grace, will you soften our hearts and enliven our spirits. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Culture is difficult to define. What makes a culture sociologically, culturally, in a city? What defines the, the atmosphere, the, the way the city operates together? A place, a community, a church, or a gathering, a workplace? Became popular in the last 15 years or so to say in, in marketplace, in businesses, how important the culture of a place is, even compared to strategy. Culture eats strategy for lunch is one of the ways that various people have said it. That creating a place where people can enjoy their work and have a shared sense of purpose far exceeds the financial planning and even the strategic approach of taking a product to market or developing a capability culture in the church is no less significant. How people experience the life of a church and the community of a church plays a significant role in the overall satisfaction of life. And there are many things that would divide a church that cause fractions and frictions within a church. Two places are involved in Galatians chapter 2 here. The first one is in Jerusalem, and the Apostle Paul we read earlier as one untimely born went to Jerusalem to find out from the other apostles if he was doing the right work when he was taking the truth of the gospel to the world around. That is to the Gentiles, and Gentiles, of course, are those who are not Jews. There was great unity in the work of the apostles and they affirmed Paul's work. And they said, no, you have been appointed to take the gospel to the Jews. Go and do that work. It is good work. But here's the problem. Let me present it this way. Theology is easy. when we're alone. Theology is easy when we are alone. The more people we involve in our lives, in our theology, in the development of our theology, the more complicated it gets. Now this is not 
to dissuade you or discourage you from taking time by yourself and finding time for both prayer and Bible reading and personal devotions. Jesus set a wonderful example withdrawing from his disciples, going up on mountaintops, praying for extended periods of time, teaching them, spending time in the scripture. Absolutely do those things. We need to do those things. But our theology, our right ideas get it much tougher when we start to involve other people. And that's exactly what is going on when we find the setting move from the city of Jerusalem now to the city of Antioch, a city where Paul has been ministering, a city that has many Gentiles who have come to the faith. There's a city perhaps of a half million people, a large city, a large international city. And when Peter comes to visit Paul in Antioch, Peter won't have dinner with the Gentiles. Now this is not an insignificant thing at all in the life of Peter. And I'm going to give a little bit of the history of the life of Peter. But I want us to focus in on this central question that really should challenge us as a church why does theology get so much more difficult when people are involved? And what should we do about it? And the simple answer to that is that we can find a lot of good answers and work out a lot of things in our mind that, that just get more difficult when more factors, more considerations need to be brought to the table in this case in this case they had agreed in their meeting there was a whole council in Jerusalem it's spoken of in the book of Acts it agreed in their meeting that when Gentiles came to saving faith in Jesus Christ they did not the the males did not need to be circumcised in order to mark their covenant identity. Their belonging in the church of Jesus Christ. And this was not an insignificant thing. In fact, there were a few of these things that were being worked out with the church as people came to a saving faith. The other big one was what you ate and who you ate with. What you ate and who you ate with. And when God called his people and set them apart, he gave very specific laws back in the Old Testament that they should not eat certain animals. And he described the reason for not eating these certain animals was because they were unclean. And we've talked about this before, and I don't need to go into it. There's no real significant rhyme or reason as to why these animals were unclean, except that they were perceived fairly widely in the culture at that time as being unclean. And I've said before that God uses these things to communicate to people in language that they understand 
that when people come to God, they need to be made clean. They don't need to be clean. They need to be made clean. And they were made clean by God. And that ties in with the whole sacrificial system in the way you were made clean. I'm going to wait for this plane. This must be Ian doing a flyby just slow so that we can wait on it. The food laws reminded the people that they needed to be made clean. It pointed them to the sacrifices, which was the way that the people were made clean. And that defined who was in the covenant community and who was not in the covenant community. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't based on what they did. It was based on God making them clean through animal sacrifices. But there was a response in what they did, and they stayed away from certain unclean things. Now, eventually, this went further and further to the point where they avoided certain things altogether for fear of being unclean. And so they wouldn't have table fellowship with a Gentile, even though that was never specified in the Old Testament commandments. They certainly would not eat that food. And so what God does when Jesus comes is he says, Jesus' sacrifice replaces the sacrifices in the temple. And there are a couple of other things that you have to understand are being undone that were given to you in the Old Testament because those things were given to you so that you would understand better who Jesus is and what he has done. And one of those things was the unclean food was declared now clean. This was no small thing. Not at all clear from Jesus' work and even his, as you read through the Gospels, his life and death and resurrection. And so what God does is he gives a vision to Peter. You read about this in the books of, book of Acts as well. He gives a vision to Peter. And Peter is around some other Gentiles and he's wrestling with this question again, just like in this passage, the existence, the, the, the inclusion of other people presses us in to consider other questions. So Peter is with this Gentile, Cornelius, and God gives him a vision. And the vision literally has animals on a blanket or a sheet being lowered down. And these are the unclean animals, a whole set of all the unclean animals. And God specifically says to Peter, take, kill them and eat them. They are now clean. It couldn't be any clearer to Peter. And Peter now, ironically, is the one who is having a hard time with this question in Antioch. Now, if you had a vision from God, I'm sure you'd say, 
I would never go back to the old way. Right? There's a classic old cartoon comic strip, B.C. And on an Easter Sunday, he drew the comic strip of one of the characters, the caveman, saying to God, if you're up there, give me a sign. And the next strip has a giant marquee sign dropping from the heaven, sitting next to the man that says, I'm here. And I think most of us think, oh, if I was Peter, I'd never make that mistake. If I just had a sign, I would never make that mistake. But one of the reasons I'm in Galatians today is to tee up our next sermon series, which is going to be to look through the first few chapters of Exodus. I like to go Old Testament, New Testament. We did a little bit of Old Testament with Ruth, but we need to do a little bit more to balance things out. So we're going to do a couple sermons in Galatians and then come back to Exodus. And the reason that I thought about Galatians first, in addition to it being in our Bible reading plan, was because in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul explains this whole concept of Peter and what he's going through and what he's not realizing and he uses this phrase he says for freedom Christ has set us free for freedom Christ has set us free and he says Peter Peter you are going back to but more than that Peter you are leading all the people who know and follow you which is basically every Christian in the world at that time and you are leading all of them back to slavery. And he uses this language over and over again in the book of Galatians. You are leading them back to slavery, and that cannot happen in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, lest we think we're so much greater than Peter or the Israelites, think about this. The Israelites had had multiple signs that God gave them as they left Egypt as they were rescued from Egypt, miraculously rescued, and yet almost immediately they go back to doubting. They even want to go back, reminiscing about the food in Egypt and how good it was, wanting to be in slavery again. And and Paul is saying to Peter, you're wanting to go back to the slavery. You're wanting to go back to the old food and we can imagine all the reasons that Peter might have wanted to do this. Maybe some of his motives were good motives. You remember Paul says, I have become all things to all men that some might be saved. He says, when I'm with certain people, I don't eat certain foods so that I don't make myself a stumbling block for their faith. For Peter to have not eaten certain unclean foods when he's with the Jewish population that he's primarily with may have been a right and good thing for him to not present another stumbling block for them in their faith. Now for us, what does that look like? It may make look like not serving alcohol in an evening meal when you have somebody over who's struggled with addiction or with problems with temptation toward alcohol. It may mean avoiding certain movies or certain 
plays or certain places in the city because you know that certain people in your company have trouble with certain things and they're led astray when certain things happen. It may mean avoiding certain types of joking, certain types of language that you might be more free to use with other people because somebody else is more sensitive to it. Not that one is particularly right or wrong, but knowing people's sensitivities and being compassionate toward them, especially so that we don't create extra stumbling blocks, hindrances, obstacles for people coming to meet the true, real Jesus Christ. In other words, it is sacrificing some of our own freedoms for the sake of others. But this isn't always an easy thing, especially when you have a large group of people gathered together. Peter's motives may have been good in some situations, but Peter had lost the greater vision. He had lost the vision that the gospel was more than just to the Jews. And by his actions and what he was choosing to do, now he was creating a stumbling block for the Gentiles to come to faith by alienating and isolating two groups of people. Again, the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is nothing new. In fact, Immediately, when the church is being formed in Jerusalem and thousands of people are coming to saving faith, one of the earliest problems that arises in Acts chapter 6 is that the widows of the Hellenists, that is the Greek or the Gentile believers who have come to faith, the non-Jews, were being overlooked when food was being shared with many people because They had stayed in the city longer than they had planned to. People didn't bring all kinds of resources. They were depending on one another so that they could make ends meet in the city and and living in this place and living together. And the apostles, in a wonderful, beautiful sign of their unity and their compassion, appoint seven men who by their names appear to be Greek themselves. And these men are responsible for making sure that the Greek women, these widows in particular, are not overlooked in the distribution of food. This plays out again and again in Acts. And it raises a question for us and what this means for us in the church. How do we still do this? in a way that keeps other people out. And this has been at the heart of who we are as a church and a heart at the heart of who I want us to be as a church. And that is constantly asking the question, what are we doing that communicates to those who are outside of this fellowship, you don't belong here? Because every single church throughout the history of the church has certain cultural preferences, has created certain cultures that communicate to some, you are not welcome. And these things become ingrained and they become blind spots for us. We don't even have eyes to see them oftentimes. 
some things are unavoidable or not within our ability to address, and that is we can't speak every language that exists here in the city of San Diego. And so many people who can't understand English are going to need to go to a different type of different gathering, a different place. Now, one thing that we've talked about on the uh, recent study with the uh, beautiful community that we could do is to occasionally sing a song partially in Spanish. And that is something that we're going to look at doing in the next year, at least a verse or two here and there so that we communicate that the gospel is not just for English speakers. There are other cultural barriers that are difficult when somebody comes into a congregation, immediately they look around at both the architecture and the people and the question on their mind is, do I belong here? Is this architecture familiar? But even more significantly than the architecture, is there anyone in the congregation who looks at least a little bit like me? This was one of our struggles when we planted a very diverse church at the beginning. But we still had a fairly small group. People would come in and they would see not a lot, maybe one person who looks a little bit like them, but most people who don't look like them. And we had a struggle because everybody had the same type of experience that they didn't have peer friendships in the church. For the Gentiles, wrestling through what it meant to be brought into this Jewish community, this predominantly Jewish community, they would have constantly, even after they had had fellowship with Paul and experienced the teaching of Paul, they would have constantly felt a little bit on edge, a little bit like outsiders trying to figure out if they belong or not. And one of the things that Paul is so upset about here, and I don't think he just outright laid into Peter a whole, whole on. I think he still did it with compassion. But Paul was concerned that those who most naturally are going to feel like they're outsiders were going to experience Peter's actions in particular in a significant way that communicated to them they really didn't belong in the true assembly. Paul had a cultural sensitivity to those Gentile believers. Even though Paul was a Jew, and even a Pharisee at that, he had a, a sensitivity to them that he recognized, one, they didn't need to be circumcised to be recognized as members, and two, they didn't need to be eating different food, and three, they needed to be eating with one another, and the church needed to be in fellowship with one another. And this is a place where I'd like to make a really important question, a really important uh, statement about who we are as a church and the type of culture that's pre presented and, and, uh, and, and favored in the church. And that is the tendency for most churches to communicate to people in the church that what you experienced in your previous church was not the real gospel. A tendency of churches to say what you experienced in your previous church is not the real gospel. And this unfortunately is prevalent in most churches. It's a way that most people grow churches. 
It's a very pragmatic way to grow a church, to say what you experienced here was not the true gospel. Now your experience is why people get baptized oftentimes multiple times when they join new churches. But there's a great weakness in that. And of course, it's fairly obvious, And but I still need to say it. One is that it minimizes the work of God through various churches. It creates a culture that doesn't recognize that God is at work in many places and in many ways in various churches. Two, it also it also presents a temptation toward pride to say, now I have the great understanding, whereas I didn't have this in my previous church. When the reality for most of us in the Christian life is that we're constantly growing or we should be growing in our understanding of the gospel. And the problem for many of us is that we just didn't understand as much when we were in our previous churches, when we're in our church now. It's not to say that there aren't errors being taught in various churches, but the gospel, the gospel unity that bears the po- most powerful witness to the watching world can appreciate what the Lord has done in our past. And even through people who live before us and our, our, our parents and our, our ancestors, not to say that they were perfect, but to appreciate the things that they have passed down to us. And not to say that they all believe the right gospel, but we don't need to stand as judge over them as much as we need to focus on what it is to be humble in our theological practice. See, the question of how we form gospel culture, a healthy culture in the church and the way that we compare ourselves perhaps to some other churches and we even say what are the things that we should be striving for in my experience in the life of the church the people who have figured out their theology fullest who have an answer to every question are oftentimes the least welcoming in the church. Are oftentimes the quickest to want to get into some type of doctrinal controversy. Are oftentimes the ones who run to Discipline is the answer to problems in the church as opposed to finding resolution to problems and unifying principles in the church. Now don't hear me wrong. Theology matters. As a church, we exist to share the right gospel. Our faith depends on the object that we put the faith in, and our theology defines that. But as a church, 
the unity of that gospel that Paul displays and that he's calling Peter to display. And as Paul and Peter and the apostles had displayed throughout the early church in the book of Acts, in their willingness to gather together, to be confronted by realities and the difficulty of what it is to gather together, pushed them to a place where they created a culture that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace extended to unbelievers... And the centrality of that truth trumped everything else in the church. That's why I entitled this sermon that the gospel culture, the the thing that defines the church is the church where grace leads. And I didn't just pull that from nowhere or even from other parts of Scripture. I pulled it from Paul's words at the end when he's explaining to Peter when he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He finishes that, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. When controversies arise in the church, they should constantly point us back to this central truth that is the grace of Jesus Christ that is found in the gospel that always must lead the way to invite others into saving faith. And if our practices and cultures are preventing other people from coming to that salvation because we're so tied up in getting our theology right, or so tied up in fixing other people's problems, then we've missed the mark as a church. I want to just look at, introduce a couple of other questions on gospel culture, and then I want to take us next week to look more at what it is to be a gospel-centered church and what that culture looks like, because it's not It's not always the easiest thing to recognize, and it's not always the easiest thing to do. Oftentimes we think we're pursuing the right things, only to find that we have created stumbling blocks for many other people around us. Peter probably thought he was doing the right thing, being sensitive to the Jews who were there in Antioch. And Paul confronted him with the need to expand his vision for what the church is who it's welcoming in, what what does that beautiful community look look like. Here are some principles, and I want you to hold me to the language of these principles because I'm still working on developing them so that we can communicate and own them as a church. But the first thing is that grace leads us, and the second thing that follows it is that grace transforms us. If we're stuck in a rut and we can't get out of it, The gospel has not entered your heart as it should have. Grace transforms us. It has the power to do so and the expectation is that it will do so. If you feel like you are no better off than you were a year ago or perhaps even seven years ago, what is it that is stopping you from experiencing God's grace to transform your heart and life? It's an important question. Third principle is that, great, that, that, that gospel culture 
leans in, it's optimistic. Not only in our own transformation, but in the transformation of others. It's hopeful that the gospel is transformative good news for those around us. Conversely, what does that look like? It looks like fear. We're protective. We're defensive. We're afraid of others around us. We don't have any kind of courage to share the gospel or maybe even a desire to share the gospel. Gospel culture is generous. It sees the things that have been entrusted to us, everything, our possessions, our intellect, our capabilities, everything as a gift that God has given to us as an investment that we are called to invest in the work of the gospel, the work of Him in and through us. And the opposite of that is a hoarding, a fear, a greed. Are you giving in some meaningful way, both to the church and to the others around you in need? A fifth concept is that it's, it's affectionate. It's heartfelt. It's not concerned first with the rationalistic explanation of everything theological or even everything around us. When we hear the gospel preached, it stirs our affections. It, it makes us feel like there is something that matters around us. And our heart isn't cold. God promises us that he cuts away the hardness of our heart when the gospel enters into it. A sixth thing is that it has leaders who are modeling the gospel. Not just speaking the gospel, but modeling it. And this is perhaps the most difficult thing of all of the things out there. And that is that as a community, we are extending grace in a way that every single person in the congregation has this feeling that if I messed up, I could go to the leadership of this church and not be afraid that they're going to say, you're out of here. This is probably the most difficult. Of everything that I've mentioned so far, this is the most difficult thing to cultivate in a church community. And I think the biggest problem is that most leaders want to appear like they have the right answers and they're doing the right thing. And extending grace to other people often feels like you're not being hard enough on those who do wrong. Now the reality is, is that culture in cultures where grace is prevalent, where the gospel culture has really taken root, when somebody does something and really messes up, those things are usually handled fairly quietly and so the whole church doesn't know the dirty laundry of other people. And that's a good thing. But we don't speak often enough generally about the expansiveness of God's grace that it covers every single sin. And because we don't talk about it enough, we don't believe it. And when we don't believe it, 
then we close ourselves off from other people. And it's the leaders in the church, those who have positions that are visible and influential, who need to be setting the example. And this is why Paul is so concerned for Peter's actions here. How the apostles went was how the church was going to go. And the apostles, they weren't saints. They weren't perfect. This wasn't the first time that Peter stumbled in his faithfulness and his trust in God. It was probably by some counts the fourth or fifth time that Peter's faults are laid out for us to see and for us to take heart that we don't have to be perfect either. To be members of the church or even to be leaders of the church. But we do have to be willing to hear correction when it comes to us. There are some other aspects of a gospel culture in a church. And of course, one of them is that people are together, spending time together in fellowship. And that is what I think one thing that we need to think about hard in the next year as we can move more toward regathering in different ways, but caring for one another and experiencing that community. Hospitality, mercy, mission, being a steadying presence around us. All these things are part of it that I want to look at more. And they're going to come out more in next week's sermon. And also as we look ahead toward um, uh, toward the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus. And how those people who had the sign, had been given a sign, wrestled with living into that community. It's a good place to stop. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your provision for this place and for your word, for the examples of Paul and Peter that you have saved one who persecuted the church in Paul and one who stumbled in his faith as Peter and even used them as leaders of your church. Father, we thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace covers all of our sins. And we pray that as a church that we would more and more be a place that truly believes that and practices it. Increase our affection for one another, our affection for you. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song. You have it probably. Come Holy Spirit, come. Come.